This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hey everyone, it's Mike. I just wanted to jump on before the episode officially starts and just give a heads up. I made a tweet about this, and I talked about this also in the show notes, but the I apologize for the quality of the episode, just because uh, we had internet gremlins kind of attack us, and then the only recording that I had that I was able to edit from was a local that had cases uh, audio really high and mine really quiet, so I had to kind of piece this together. So apologies for moments where it seems like case it just like laughs at something and it kind of peaks, and then when I try to say something during case's part that it's kind of low, it'll be fixed before next week. But just wanted to give you all a heads up, and again, apologies for that. And with any without any more ado, here's the show. To the highway in a brand new day. Gotta let it go. So Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate for August 13th, 2020. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast feed or on our own dedicated podcast feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you would like to donate to the show, you can click the link in the show notes and it'll direct you to Red Circle where you could do a single donation or you could do a reoccurring donation. There's no obligation whatsoever but it'd be certainly appreciated i am one of your hosts it's your old pal iron mike spears i'm joined as always by my co-host case low in case what a week it's been and even more so what a day it's been or last two hours a busy time busy time good time i like when wrestling gets a little chaotic like this i especially like it because most of what we're talking about tonight is in the ring and there was a lot of shows to go over. Three shows happened since our last weekly update, and we have one more to preview that is happening uh, this upcoming Saturday on August 15th. But news broke about an hour before we started recording that I, we doing just preparing for this show as we were on the air, it seems like maybe some misinformation has spread about the absence of roster pages for T-Hawk and Alinda Man. We're going to start off with some strong hearts news. So Mike, what do you make of the situation? So actually it was while recording uh, everything elite that a bunch of AEW either cuts or expirations happened and people were being removed from the roster. And that's when people also noticed, I think it's fair to say that T-Hawk and Alindaman did not have roster pages. Now we spent like the last 10 minutes trying to figure out if they ever had roster pages to begin with, but there's kind of a, little bit of momentum to the idea that they might be done in all elite wrestling it's something that at the time i was like okay that lines up but more as more as we're kind of getting away from that moment i'm at least like 
if they didn't have rosters or pages to begin with, then I don't know what we're doing here. So, yeah, you know, the Wrestling Observer just broke a story confirming that Sadie Gibbs and B. Priestley and Jimmy Havoc were released. There's no mention of T Hawk and L. Lindemann in the piece that just went up on F4WOnline.com. And that's not surprising. I mean, even even if T Hawk and Lindemann were released, we don't know when they can get back in the country. Now, I'm assuming they never had guaranteed money coming in. Shima, on the other hand, it wouldn't surprise me if he's getting some sort of downside from AEW, but I just looked at T Hawk and Lindemann as two guys. You know, why would you? pay these guys, you know, consistently when you can pay them per date and kind of loop them in on Shima's deal. Now that, unless Mike knows something different, that is pure speculation on my end that they were never getting guaranteed money. But regardless of that, we don't know when they can come back in the country. So why would you sort of carry this dead weight around when it could be August of 2021 before we realistically see those two wrestling in America? So, the idea, if there is any truth to it, of Lindemann and T-Hawk no longer being on the roster, I don't even really look at that as a story. I mean, you look at who was cut, and, and Jimmy Havoc is his own situation, but the two women that were cut were the two lowest-ranking women on the roster. I think that's fair well, to say. I mean, they never B really— well, B was treated well, pretty highly, but she was never over. Okay, is that what... Because I don't really remember her doing anything. I mean, was she on Dynamite at some point before the shutdown? Because I looked at yeah. her as, like, I know she was in the Battle Royal last year at All Out, and then I was, I, I assume she was just kind of AW dark fodder, but am I, am I incorrect in saying that? In the beginning of 2020, she was over a lot more, actually, and it looked like that they were building to a... Uh, World Women's Title Run or Title Program with her and Nyla Rose after Nyla beat Rio, so like she was positioned and she wasn't someone that, in comparison to the other woman who was released, Sadie Gibbs. Sadie Gibbs was completely just she's done three matches. She appeared on TV once in 2020, but has been an absolute non-factor. B. Priestley, I feel like the issue is also that stardom, like understandably so, is her number one obligation. So, but yeah. But, but, I mean, like, she was not, like, over here as much. Like, I would say, like, that she's over – she was over here as much as, like, Emi Sakura was. Like, that's what – that's how Okay. All right, yeah. But even then, if you look at the current men's roster, I mean, just being realistic about it, the two – if they did have roster pages, which is, you know, uh, possibly untrue to begin with, but the two lowest-ranking people on the AEW men's roster would be T-Hawk and Al Lindemann. So if you're – you know, if you can't use them, there's nothing wrong with cutting bait now. And the fact that Shima is still on the roster means that at least Shima will be over as soon as he's allowed to come back. And, you know, Shima brings his friends wherever he goes. So I, I don't think it is the end of T-Hawk and Lindemann in All Elite Wrestling. I think they will work there again. And even if they don't, I do don't think it's that big of a deal. I think AEW means much more to Shima than it does to T-Hawk and Lindemann. But because this came out, Mike and I were just kind of looking at stuff. And, you know, we say in the show description that we cover strong hearts. We haven't exactly talked about a lot of strong hearts lately. It's probably a good time to do a strong hearts roundup and to, you know, to an extent, summarize what exactly they are doing. Yeah. And 
one thing I will say is for them to appear on AEW shows when they did, there had to be a contract and there had to have been a visa. So to my knowledge, they could come back whenever if they actually were cut or not cut. So that's like the last thing I feel like to say about at least them if AEW is who knows they were under some sort of contract and they still might be under some sort of contract because they had to have been some to be a foreign national and to get a work visa. But yeah, no, it, it's something with strong hearts now. Like it's just with a the shutdown, there's really not as much. And then also the closure of Russell one, it's been kind of something where at least in my opinion, and I've done a lot of like OWE related stuff, but just talking about strong hearts, it does kind of seem like that strong hearts for lack of a better terms, unless, and I know your read of this is different than I am, unless like this Ledette promotion happens, I don't see how it's necessarily advantageous for where there are in the careers for uh, Shima, uh, or not Shima, for a Lindemann and T-Hawk to still be affiliated with Shima. Well, I understand that, and I think it's worth looking at some numbers here real quick. When you talk about T-Hawk and El Lindemann, who are the, the primary forces behind this group, you know, following Shima's path, and yes, you've got somebody like uh, Shigehiro Irie and Seki Yoshioka, who was the world or the Wrestle One representative for Strong Hearts, who, when that promotion disbanded, Yoshioka's tenure as a member of the unit uh, ended as well. But, and I think part of it is my fault because I think I ran with this false narrative, especially during the middle months of the year of May and June when it was empty arena shows and we weren't really seeing a lot of T-Hawk and Lindemann and we were seeing none of Shima was like, oh boy, like, you know, at least all these other promotions are trying to make moves and guys are popping up here and there and, and what are strong hearts doing? But if you look at the numbers through this point of the year, we're recording this August 13th, 2020, T-Hawk has worked 45 matches this year, primarily in DDT, where he's worked 13 and is currently in the midst of a King of DDT push, and he's worked seven matches in Big Japan, obviously had the four matches in Wrestle 1 before they closed down, and then the bulk of his work outside of that comes from not only All Elite Wrestling, but IWRG and the Global Strong Hearts Tour at the beginning of the year. It seems like it was three years ago that they worked, say, Warrior Wrestling, but that was this year. You know, it, it's one of those things where he's pushed in all of these companies. And at this time last year, you know, he's worked 45 matches right now. At this time last year, he had only worked 36. And that is through the end of August. So I am giving you the international tour they did then where they went to Canada and did WXW in Germany and then did PCW in the UK through the end of August last year. He had only worked 36 matches and ended up working a total of 76. And Lindemann's numbers, obviously, because they tour the world together, they're they're not too uh, dissimilar. You know, Lindemann's worked 47 matches this year. He worked a total of 81 all of last year. Lindemann, again, his primary companies this year have been DDT and Big Japan. So it's not like these guys are struggling for work. The outlier there is Shima, who has only worked on the bizarre iPhone shot, Twitter streamed, Strong Hearts produce shows. He has only worked those two shows since everything shut down, since the final Russell One show. But she was also 42. And clearly, 
is respected and invested in all elite wrestling in some sense. If you follow him on Twitter, he watches Dynamite weekly. I mean, he watches Dynamite as much as I do. But I, I do think there's a bit of a false narrative that T-Hawk and Lindemann are drowning out there. I, I don't think that's true. Now, you could argue, especially in the case of Al Lindemann, and, and I, I want to circle back to this. I'll, I'll let you speak after this. You could argue that they are wasting their potential in, say, a Big Japan Pro Wrestling or an IWRG. But as we talked about with Dragon Gate J a few months ago, this OWE split, regardless of what you think of OWE, in whether it's the Stronghearts' fault or not, it has been a colossal failure. I don't necessarily you know, have a negative connotation towards them, but their idea is just, you know, it, it hasn't worked for a variety of reasons, most of those reasons bigger than wrestling. So again, you could argue that they're wasting their potential, but the OWE split needed to happen, and they're being pushed and working regularly in other companies. So they might not have the glitz and the glamour that they would have in a Dragon Gate, but I don't think they are in need of any sort of cry for help. I would say that the best thing for T-Hawk's career was leaving Dragon Gate at this point. Completely. It was something... T-Hawk has un undoubtedly benefited from the split. Is that fair to say? No, I would absolutely agree. I mean, the Dragon Gate fan base was just not going to... Uh, uh, th there was not a path forward for him in front of that fan base. Like, and it would be something that he would kind of be like a ghostly reminder of failures in the past. I think that that's an entirely fair thing to say, in my opinion, that it just was not going to happen. Uh, Working-wise, I don't think that that's like a disappointment for them right now for DDT and Big Japan. Like, match-wise, that's fine. It's something where... With the whole idea, and I think like this is one thing you do have to loop OWE in, in its relative non-existence. The idea with their split was that these guys would get these like appearances in Japan. They would do AEW stuff. They would do the stuff in Mexico. They 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 literally debuted for AAA on like AAA is one of AAA's last shows before the shutdown, which is something that a lot of people forgot, but. They were supposed to have all this work based around the new concept and the promotion in Shanghai. And that was supposed to be where, like, the bulk of everything was happening. Now that's completely absent. And I think, like, you can talk about match, the amount of matches they've had, but they don't have a home. And that's the central problem, I feel like, with the three of them. Well, with those two, to be honest, is that they are wrestlers in their prime that are just vagabonds and, like, floating out there. And being frank just like doing these shots in DDT in Big Japan, they did it to a W to like the most depressing uh, Corkin crowd, I think since the return, 230 people in Corkin, which wild, but it's something that working those dates and working just like those spots, that's not a full-time wrestler schedule in Japan. Like Big Japan has famously have had a lot of financial problems. DDT, not as many people are under full-time DDT contracts, like that they just do DDT and no side jobs. When they were in Dragon Gate, Dragon Gate operates on, on like the whole commune idea and like as a co-op, so like they did stuff for the company and they were paid for that and they don't have that thing and I think that's the big problem. Like you can list the matches, but the core thing is that it's not what I would consider a full living. 
the lack of a home promotion is ultimately what I think the hang up with most people is, is that, and especially coming from Dragon Gate, which is this company of stability and of consistency for them to leave that home certainly hurts their image. But you have to remember until April of this year, they had a home in Wrestle One. That is the right. first place they went and that is the place they stayed. And again, we don't have any insider information, but assuming just connecting the dots, assuming they link up with the Ledette promotion, which if you're starting a company in Japan, given just the lack of depth there, I, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I would open my checkbook and say, Shima, how much for you and your guys? Like, let's make this happen. So two months from now, we could be talking about how they are the faces of, you know, what I'm sure will end up being a failing promotion, but that will likely be because of factors outside of their control. A lot of, I think, the negative public perception, at least in the West, because I, I truly have no idea what the Japanese fan thinks of Stronghearts right now. Obviously, not great given the lack of, you know, traction that Stronghearts has been able to pick up. But you look at the way some of these dominoes fall. Now, I, I mean, OWE, the idea, look, would I ever make a business move with China involved? No can't recommend that obviously a bad idea from the start but you have to remember these early owe you know footage that we were shown gao jinga showing up in wrestle one even doing yingen who showed up in wrestle one and then i believe he got injured and has completely fallen off the face of the earth he did the narrative he did ddt you're right he won I, he won a, the ddt six-man titles right. it was him shima and t-hawk the the narrative that was building of like, oh my God, OWE could change the wrestling world. Logistically, as we've come to know just through us trying to detail the process of Stronghearts getting into America, it logistically, it was doomed to fail. But the yeah. performance aspect of it, it, you know, that can't be understated that there was a six month period in 2018 and, you know, maybe early 2019 where, oh my God, these guys could change the world. And I, I I just can't necessarily put that fault of this business conglomerate with, you know, uh, under the, the control of the Chinese government. I can't put that failure onto the Stronghearts brand. No, no. And I've said this behind the EE Patreon paywall, but this is like months ago. And I feel like I can say this now. If a promotion was going to succeed in China with the way that Chinese companies operate and from my understanding how the chinese government operated this was the shot don't ever expect like a wwe thing in china don't ever expect aew ufc has had very middling thing they've mainly done stuff in macau and they've kept it to macau but you just can't expect it like this is like an institutional thing so and and as for owe in japan you have to remember mike we heard months before their december 30th cork and hall show last year at the end of last year we heard we heard that Kenny Omega was going to be booked for the show. We later found out the original idea was Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks yeah, the coming into Cork and Hall. Yeah, the 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 all elite faction coming into the Strong Hearts Purdue show in Cork and Hall at the very end of 2019. If that happens, maybe OWE Japan picks up some traction, but just given how already splintered the Japanese landscape is and now the rumors of, especially as we've heard, Gao Jinga, who was the main Chinese student that they were using, the guy that was doing 
running from the floor onto the apron and then jumping over the ropes in a way that I've literally never seen any other human even attempt to do that. They're sort of prized pupil. Our understanding is he's now banned from Japan, and that is pre-COVID. So now you factor in the situation where you can't get your Chinese students who are living and training in Cambodia into Japan. Well, you're kind of, you know, a sitting duck there. There's not a ton going on. Right. But with the with the situation of T-Hawk and Al Lindemann in particular, I don't worry about them. I think they are in I obviously, you know, don't know if they're drowning in debt. You know, maybe their financials are not as strong as I think they are, but they've got nice little careers. You know, it's it's not bad. The one person that I actually I think their image is hurt by all of this is Shima for the simple notion that him working Big Japan is kind of sad given his career. Like, it sucks that he has to go work, you know, before limited capacity shows were a thing. Shima was still working in front of 600 people in Cork and Hall, either with Wrestle One or with Big Japan. And that's a bummer. But the brand, I, I, I don't chalk it up as this massive failure. I think COVID has compounded a lot of issues and has sped up this process of maybe some dissatisfaction with the Western fan. But again, we're coming off of, you know, a year ago, T-Hawk was the champion of Wrestle 1. Stronghearts was the only thing that ever drew in Wrestle 1. And they were doing exactly what they set out to do, minus the Chinese aspect of it, where they were having global tours and they were working America and Mexico and Japan and Germany. And they were going all, all around the world. And, you know, like I said earlier, it's not as prestigious as the Dragon Gate ring, but I don't think they've fallen flat on their face. I just think, obviously, the main part of what they were doing, the entire reason they left in the first place, it didn't work. But I, it didn't not work because of Shima. No, no, but I, and this is just me, I think that for them, and especially for T-Hawk being now in his 30s, now he's, I mean, T-Hawk's a 10-year vet right now. Like, that's wild. But, like, where they are right now, in my opinion, this is just me, I think that they have to realize if they're trying to find a permanent home in Japan, what being part of Strong Hearts will make that very hard for. And I, and I don't think that's an unfair thing to say, but when, like, looking at everything and looking at how COVID accelerated things, because it absolutely did accelerate things in a lot of ways. Not for Russell 1. Russell 1 was going to close before COVID. Yeah, yes. It's something that when you look at T-Hawk in his 30s, and Elindeman, I mean, Elindeman's 26, or he turns 27 this year. You have to wonder at a certain point, like, is this what I'm tying my cart to? Is this what I really had to do so? Because I'm not saying that those guys could walk back into Dragon Gate because I don't think that that's possible tomorrow or next year. But if they're going to be looking to, like, if this is something that they, that they aren't just going to be, like, content with doing this and doing other things, I think a decision has to be made about if Stronghearts still exist. And I think that's that's just my own feeling, and that's just my own sense of things, and sensing how things are going, sensing how a lot of things because of COVID accelerated within the Japanese wrestling industry. I mean, look at uh, uh, look at Cyber Agent or Cyber Wrestle, or I forget what they what they're calling that uh, umbrella organization for NOAA and DDT. But I think that that, that the uh, unique politics within Japanese wrestling, especially as it pertains to 
Shima and Strong Hearts is going to make it very difficult for them in future years. Like, right now, I wouldn't say... I mean, they did what they did. Like, I don't think it was a failure on their part, as you said, but I think they have to make a decision about their future. Well, let me ask you, and, and maybe you don't have the answer for this, which I think is fine. I, I don't think that hurts your stance anyways, because I'm asking you a bigger question. But what's the roadmap if T-Hawk and Lindemann were to split ties with Shima? Because right now, you could argue that Shima is preventing them from getting their foot in the door in All Japan. Now, we don't know any specifics as to the politicking behind Shima and All Japan specifically, but you look at the laundry list of promotions they have worked since splitting from Dragon Gate, and All Japan is the big exception, with pro wrestling Noah Noah being in there. Well, that's the thing. So Noah's now under this DDT umbrella. So... I don't I don't know enough about their business operations to say, wow, it's weird that Stronghearts ha- hasn't popped up in Noah, where now because they're under DDT, they might waltz in there next week uh, into Noah, and we right. just don't know. So I, I understand that, but they're you know they they won their titles, they won DDT titles as soon as they debuted. They ran Wrestle One, and again, like I said, the only people that have ever drawn in that company were strong hearts because they're aligned with Shima. They're pushed in DDT. They're pushed in big Japan and they get to, you know, again, the triple a thing is because of the ties to Shima. They get to tour Mexico and these mid-level indies in America and the UK because they're names with Shima. If they split from that L Lindemann, look, I don't think he'll ever return to Dragon Gate, but if anybody could, it would be L Lindemann and I think he would find a nice little career in the mid-card there, and I think it would be fine. The way the situation has been explained to us, he is not the root of the beef. He's no. he's there, and it's they're not happy about it, but if Lindemann showed up in Dragon Gate one day, it would be less shocking than when Ultimo showed up in the company last year. Now, if Shima comes back, it's a different story. <laughs> That's a story I would like to see. It would be fascinating, but I, I, I don't see that happening. So Lindemann, like I said, you can make the argument that, man, you know, and we'll talk about later on in the show, I've got a, a Lindemann match that I, I am going to briefly bring up of like, oh, my God, that kid was so good. Like he had so much potential and he could talk on the mic and he was working above his size. And it's a shame that he got taken away from the company where it really felt like he's, he could succeed, although I think he does very, very well in DDT. So... Again, you can chalk him up to uh, maybe it's not right for him. But T-Hawk was the Roman Reigns of Dragon Gate. I mean, nobody wanted to see this guy mm-hmm. in the position that he was in. And he's unequivocally been better outside of the promotion. The best thing that happened to T-Hawk was him leaving the company. It just so happened that when he left, his tag team partner, Ata ended up filling that role and was largely unsatisfactory as the leading heel up until two weeks ago when he just happened to win the world title in the best match of his life. But T-Hawk has only been benefited from leaving the company. And as we speak right now, is on a run in the King of DDT tournament. And it would not surprise me at all if T-Hawk is headlining DDT shows as a singles competitor later on in 2020. And Shima, for, you know, everything that can be said about him and his ego and the way he does business, I uh, I credit Shima only working two matches since the beginning of April to the fact that this man seemingly has made a very good living 
He is 42 years old with a, someone that has had a broken neck and a, a long list of injuries and has a family. I just, I don't think Shima wants to work right now. And I don't blame him now. Again, that's pure speculation on my end. But when I look at his social media activity and the fact that Lindemann and T-Hawk are popping up in a, a bunch of different promotions during this time period, my guess is Shima saying, eh, talk to me when fans come back. And we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. But I, I, I do think, as a whole, the Western fan base has maybe been a little bit harder uh, on strong hearts than is fair. I mean... And, I, and I've said, Sheamus is going to get the bag. Like, he is someone that's going to make his money. And he's someone in his career that there's less years in front of him in the ring than there are behind him. And I think that's a completely realistic thing. It could be something where I know that AAA and IWRG are pursuing a relationship. And IWRG has, like, this real long history with the uh, Dragon System and is one of the bases for Shun Skywalker and Yushio Hioka. So the fact that this is all happening is incredibly fascinating, and I don't even pretend to understand the politics between Lucha Libre companies and all of this. But it's something where like, I do think that that's a thing. But it's also something that essentially, and, and I think you're absolutely right with what, what you're saying, but all the stuff that they've been doing with T-Hawk and Elindeman and... Uh, DDT is not related really to Stronghearts. They've basically been like assistant members of Damnation. Like they've been like the Damn Hearts thing. And it just seems like that that's a landing place, but they're still tied up there. And do, if I were someone in their shoes personally, is it something that it's worth it? And that's what I wonder. And I guess that's what I'm coming back to. Like, as we've seen, Yoshioka was there for the Russell One having member in there. There's, there's Issei Onizuka who is there because he was Yamamura's friend, and then Yamamura now is a club DJ. So it's one of those things that, for those two guys, I think that, and I still do believe that, they, I don't blame them for any of this, but I also think that, that if I were in their shoes, I would be having to like reassess some things and reassess on where I want to go going forward, and I think that that's something that for them that I think that future is coming sooner rather than later making that decision, personally. One more note on Stronghearts uh, that I have, I don't know if Mike has more, but just to address the other main promotion that they have not worked, which is New Japan, uh, I never looked at that as a no. realistic possibility. I, I don't think that was their idea when they left. And also, we are now living in a world where Shingo Takagi appears to be a very respected member of the New Japan locker room, and thus that that is where I'm throwing up you could say my hands right now. <laughs> that, that that is where you could say, well, Tiok and Lindemann were invited by New Japan. Uh, it would obviously be under the rule that Shima was not allowed within sixty feet of the building, given the Shingo and Shima history that we discussed on the Open the Voice Gate podcast, where we discussed Freedom Fight. 2010, which was released on June 29th of this year, if you'd like to go back and listen to that, where we kind of detail the personal beef between Shingo and Shima. So, again, you could say, well, Shima's holding them uh, up from getting there, but I don't think that was ever a realistic possibility in, in any possible way. So, just to cover all their bases. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a shame they wouldn't, but they wouldn't. So, just to cover all the bases there. Yeah, yeah. So, it's interesting. It's one of those things that I mean... I feel for them because 
powers bigger than themselves have kind of like done this like because as you said like when it happened like up until factors that were bigger than them came to play it seemed like things were happening it seemed like it could really be a thing and then you know i mean best laid plans so it, it, yeah i mean just to to come full circle and talk about all elite wrestling for just a second my understanding is and maybe mike knows otherwise but my understanding was they had every intent on using the as they were dubbed by this website the chinese acrobats and all of the OWE trainees that were, you know, seemingly good enough to be on national TV and, uh, you know, were accessible. But that goes into an issue that I don't even think the lawyers at WWE could navigate the international talent visa laws behind getting these people from China to work in America. I mean, that is ultimately what held them up more than anything is laws that go above any lawyer I know and voices of wrestling seems to be fully stocked in the lawyer department. I mean, we ran this by some people. They're like, Oh, why do I did not go to school for that? I do not know. And everybody that we talked to, it was just a bigger issue than professional wrestling. And it was, it was something that the powers that be at, at all, all Elite wrestling and OWE and Shanghai at the time just could not combat. Right. It's yeah. just yeah. It's, it's just the reality of the situation. Yeah, I mean, I could speak from firsthand, not from talking to people, from firsthand knowledge. AEW and OWE did all they could. I have, w- without getting into some stuff that I don't. The one thing I don't care to talk about too much, I, I that they tried. That it wasn't for a lack of trying. It wasn't just like, a, hey, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and the X, Y, and Z never happened. It is that was one of those things that I mean. I even looked at international visa law case. I even took a look at that and I was like, I don't see how this is going to happen. And I mean, I'm a dummy with no with the only law classes I've taken have been business and media law, and I had no clue. So you're was, you're an archivist and you're looking at international right, visa yeah. laws. That's oh my god. I, I I think I could say like I think I talked to you like the moment after this happened. It's like oh. I'm looking at this thing for some reason, and, and there's no reason in the world why it should ever really happen. So it's just, it, it's just like again, circumstances bigger than their own, at least for that, and then circumstances bigger than their own for OWE. Could happen that OWE starts back up in Cambodia after COVID. I doubt it. I really feel for the uh, the trainees they have there. That's not a very uh, the contracts that they have are not contracts that you would see in the west and it's a contract that is very they're tied to it and i and it's one of those things that it's a sad thing about how talent works in asia just how it operates and sadly you know they're like t hawk and lindemann have options at the end of the day they could have options i think we could both agree on that but the but the kids who were brought in from the uh from the shaolin kung fu exhibition company don't necessarily have that and those are the people that i like all this that i really feel a big sense of sadness for yeah those are people that do not have options at least in a professional wrestling industry my loose understanding of how those contracts work is that for the next seven, seven to ten years <laughs> seven uh they will be kept busy doing other forms of entertainment, likely showing off that athletic ability, but perhaps the avenue that is professional wrestling uh, will cease to exist. But we don't know 
until COVID becomes a little bit more under control on that part of the world, what exactly they'll do in Cambodia or the attempt that they were they were trying to do of opening up another training center outside of Shanghai in a different part of China. That's just all up in the air, and that is, once again, bigger than the powers that be. That is COVID sort of dictating things. Right. But with all that being said, unless there's anything else you really wanted to touch on before we get into the Dragon Gate portion of the show, I think it's the first time in a long time we've said the Dragon Gate portion. We There was a lot of stuff that happened in Dragon Gate this, this week. Oh, my God, Mike, there were, there were three... Uh, very fun shows. I I think the best show of this stretch is the one that we're going to talk about first because there are a few matches on this August 8th Kyoto KBS Hall show that I really, really liked. Yeah, so let's get into it. This show is, as Case mentioned, the show from uh, Kyoto KBS Hall. It was on August 8th. I'm going to try to have this episode up tomorrow as we said we're recording this on the 13th you should still have one more day to watch it it should be coming down on the 15th and really two hours and 20 minutes and a lot and some of that is trimmed off because of mic talk one of the more enjoyable shows attendance was down it was 315 for their first show back again that was their first show back and they're running it three times in a month attendance was at 225 but i noticed that the crowd was a lot more lively than early on so uh just going down the card, yeah, again, this is my recommendation as a watch as well. Uh, match Zero was a unaffiliated tag team match. It was Punch Tominaga and Hoho Loon versus Jimmy and Madoka Kakuta. Uh, Tominaga got the win with the cross arm breaker in 7 minutes and 6 seconds on Kakuta. And, like, my big, one, like my biggest takeaway is, boy, Kakuta's tall. Yeah, I just a, a guy that... I'm glad he's in professional wrestling because he has such a weird frame. It just is built weird. I'm glad he's here. I'm glad he will hopefully be able to. I I hope he will figure out a way to use that size to his advantage as his career goes along. Yeah, he had like this discus lariat that I was like, man, you're lanky and you're pulling this off. You're a real lanky boy doing that. And it can be real exciting. Of course, he already has merch out. He's the second member of the class to have merch out. So it does seem that at least there's some interest in him. But other than that, like, that was my big takeaway was, hey, I got to see Kakuta. The rest of this match, I would say, is pretty uh, passable. I went two and a quarter on it. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's a very fair way to start the show. All right, and then the official opening of the show was Toriumon versus Dragon Gate, six-man tag match. Toriumon's side was Ultimo Dragon, Ryo Saito, and Masato Yoshino versus... Benkei, Strong Machine J, and Dragon Die. So basically, they were running back the opener from a Memorial Gate, but subbing in Ultimo for uh, Susumi Okoska. Jay got the pen in 12 minutes and 48 seconds with the machine suplex on Ryo Saito. And a pretty fun opener where, like, over this week, we've seen that Strong Machine J kind of has, like, an obsession with Ultimo Dragon. Yeah. I, the, I, I don't know. These sort of quasi-triangle gate openers where they're putting Ben K and Strong Machine J in there, but against these legends. I don't know. I thought this match was weird. I kept on waiting for something else to happen, if that makes sense. Like, I just kind of expected this match to be a bigger thing than it actually was, and then it didn't end up being that, and you could even, you know, when we talk about the Osaka show next, it's later on in the card, but it's still Strong Machine J and Dragon Daya teaming with one another. That time they teamed with Yosuke Santa Maria, and once again, I just, I kept on waiting for something 
and it never happened. And I think I, you know, in a weird way, I was watching this match to a point that I was distracted waiting for an angle or waiting for a finish that would tell us what the future program might be for these Triangle Gate guys. But I, it, it was never there. So it was a, it was a fine opener, but I just, I, I, it's not that I expected more. I just expected something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You expected something that when you have them paired off so much that eventually something's going to happen. I gave it a gentleman's three. Like, it, it's it's a decent opener. It did, uh, like, we saw it a lot over the last 10 days. So at a certain point, I become kind of numb to it. Mike, you lost your mind on the second match. I think you went a little bit higher than a gentleman's three. Is that correct? I, this is almost a notebook match for me. Match two was KZ versus Takedo Kamai, my main man, Takedo Kamai. And KZ won with the Genji Gangorame. I don't think I butchered that that badly. But yeah, it's his new submission hold on Kamai in 10 minutes, 52 seconds. I went three and three quarters. This is my favorite rookies match of this year out of this class. I did not go as high, but I also really liked the match because Takejo Kamai is going to have a very interesting career where he is going to be compared to Kento Kabune for as long as they exist with one another. I mean, it is very much a BB Hulk Shingo Takagi situation where Shingo was the first graduate of the Dragon Gate Dojo and Hulk was the second. And given the way they were booked, they were attached at the hip until literally Shingo's last match in the company. I think it is, you know, fair to speculate that if Kabuna and Kamai's careers go all right and they go without major injury, it's going to be a similar thing with them. And the thing is Kabuna stole the show in their debut match and then continued to be very, very good to a point that, you know, he got a t-shirt, you know, two months into his career that it lessened the, the eyeballs on Takato Kamai, but Kamai is really, really good. And I compared him last week to a Kagatora uh, one in the sense that, look, Kamai's never winning the Dreamgate title. Now, if he does, you know, I'd, I'd like to see that story, but I, I just don't expect that from him. But Kamai, just from his body and the way he moves around the ring at, at such an inexperienced level and at such a young age, this is a guy who is, is going to likely contend with the Bravegate title and the Twingate titles for as long as he can go. I think that is a perfectly reasonable way to think of him, and... Certainly not an insult in my mind that this guy, you know, could one day run the Bravegate division. And for him to, again, be so young into his career and to have a 10-minute, almost 11-minute match with KZ, who is an extremely pushed commodity, is extremely over right now, and has a new dangerous move, for him to hang in there with KZ and to really convey heart and fight and passion in a way that is going to aid him for the rest of his career, given his underdog stature. I came away from this match elated at the future of Takato Kamai. Yeah, and as his number one fan, I'm so happy that, like, these two guys had great chemistry. Like, that was, like, my... Great chemistry. I think the thing that really excited me about this match is how much chemistry these two guys had. And I feel like that that's something that... You know, like, they both, you have the new style that's really coming in, and Casey's kind of at the vanguard of it. And then they would have had, like, experience, at least I would assume, during training and COVID, they might have had time rolling together. But, like, you had a grappling to start, and it was really 
solid grappling. It wasn't like perfunctory grappling. And it went from there to like Kamai trying to do chops as like this class are supposed to be a bunch of heavy hitters. And KZ just starched him. And it was like something that was just like really exciting. And then from there, like we got to see like this really awesome, like arm triangle head scissors flash pin out of Kamai going into the finish. And I don't think that he has the ceiling, like you said, or the projection of Kobune, but it's someone that you see it and you're like, okay, this is a guy that he he's going to be someone that like gets certain parts of it. I remember Jay talking about how he originally wanted to be masked, but he's too handsome to be masked in their opinion. So like he's gonna be someone that I think like even though like the size is gonna always be an issue with him, it's just like exciting to see a match like this. There's a great moment in the match where KZ puts his hands behind his back and lets Kamai chop him as hard as he can a few different times. And it's just, it's a good reflection on the current state of the company where you have this Takeda Kamai kid, brand new into the industry, rookie is tremendous. And who was he throwing all of his force at with the uh, intent on gaining their respect? It is not a Masada Yoshino or a Naruki Doi or a Masaki Mochizuki. It is Keizi, who was in the prime of his career, who continues to ascend to levels. I was watching some older Keizi earlier today. It is astonishing to think that the Keizi that existed in 2011 is the same Keizi that exists in 2020. But that is the world we are living in. Quite honestly, it's a world I like to live in because KZ is just a phenomenal pro. And it is so cool to see him in this veteran role, dominating the young guy, a new match structure for him. And one that I thought he was very, very good at. Yeah. And it's something that really has made these uh, matches super interesting. And I'm really excited to see where it can go from here because we've seen how well these young guys are integrating themselves with it. Like, I wonder what kind of match that Sora Fuchikawa could have with KZ. I mean, I still feel like Inoue is the one we know the least about, but hey, KZ can do the veteran thing. If it so happens in 15 years, I remember saying this on Twitter when I saw this, if it so happens that like in 15 years, KZ is in the Don Fuji role of beating up youngsters, that's not a bad role for him to be in in his 40s. Masahiro Inoue still does not have a roster page on the Gaiora Dragon Gate website, and I just don't know what to do about that. I think that is so strange, given that all of the other rookies have full profiles up there. So that is just something to monitor as we go along. Because I think Inoue is really fun to watch in the, what, two times we've seen him? But he is not exactly lumped in with the rest of this class so that's just that's just something to look at as we continue forward with the class of 2019 and 2020 yeah and it's something that i think is going to be an interesting part especially given like how much older a lot of people are and i'm really excited to see that and i'm really stoked to see what can go there and then we went from there to like a class a match of classmates of the same generation as Eita, in his first match as Dreamgate champion, had a singles match non-title with Yosuke Santa Maria, and Eita was not there to play around. He did not go to Kyoto to have hijinks and to deal with Yosuke Santa Maria, and it ended up having like a, it ended up like having like a pretty another really solid like singles match on a card that just for some reason had two singles matches and we had two fun ones, and I'm happy about that. Yeah, I think I like this match a little bit more than you. I went three and a quarter on KZ Kamai, and I went three and a half here because I, I, I like the dynamics at play where you're exactly right that Ata was not messing around, 
but the match still went 10 minutes at almost 11 at 10.51, and Maria got a shocking amount of offense in for someone's first match as the Open the Dreamgate champion. I mean, she really, you know, laid in some, some shots on Aiton. Now, was Aiton ever, you know, ever in any danger to lose? No, he was not. But it was just, it was interesting to see this match play out. And then Aiton went into overdrive in the finish and really, really destroyed Maria. And it was just very satisfying to watch Aiton put in a weird spot where he's wrestling a generational foe in his first match as Dreamgate champion, but he's in match three. And there's, you know, I, I just, if I were him, I would be very concerned about my positioning on the card and where I stack up to, you know, a Naruki Doi who was in the main event or a Kaito Ishida who's in his unit who was in the semi-main. But Eita had a main eventer's presence in this match that was very comforting to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely wrestled as, oh, I'm the Dreamgate champion in the third match. I'm going to treat this like the Dreamgate champion in the third match. And that was like a good takeaway. I went three and a quarter on this one, so I was only a little bit less into it as you are. Uh, the fourth match was Yamato and Kai versus BB Hulk and Shimizu. Uh, uh, BB Hulk won with an inside cradle after just like a real like flat, def- like distracting finish. There was like a distraction, and there was a low blow, and then there was the finish. And I went three and a quarter for it. Yeah, no, I'm I'm right in the uh, the same boat. There probably three stars for me. It's a match that I you know ultimately I think needs to happen. It's it's four guys in a feud, and the Yamato and Kai tag team specifically. I still, for as much as I loved and supported the idea of Minora and Jason Lee winning the tag titles, I think they have a lot of unfinished business with BB Hulk, and I still do not think Hulk is as bad as other people say he is. Now, again, a long way off from where he was, you know, a, a decade ago as we rewatched all these Dragon USA shows from the first year and a half, and both of us were like, oh my god, BB Hulk used to be so good, and more importantly, so agile. It's not that anymore, but I still don't mind Hulk's role. But this is this is the match where I was like, oh, that's right. This is a Kyoto single cam, no commentary show. This tag match makes sense. Yeah, like I was actually today re-watching the episode of Infinity where they had the BB Hulk turn on Shingo and Kirtozawa's return. And just like the agility they displayed there, it's just like he was like flying across the ring in the five on five match happened afterwards. I'm like, holy shit, BB Hulk owned. And then, I mean, he's... BB Hulk in his twenty in his forties now, and in twenty twenty, and you know, like my big issue with this show actually falls with these next two matches because it was Red versus First Dragon Gate and Red versus Toriumon, and they had the exact same finish. Both of them had a both of them had a flat uh, distraction, low blow finish, and just was really kind of frustrating. At least Ishida, the low blow wasn't the finish. It went there was the low blow distraction, which let him lock on. To the ankle hold, it was as I mentioned. Torimon versus Red, Dragon Kid, Shuji Kondo, and Yasushi Kanda versus Kaido Ishida, Diamante, and Kazuma Sakamoto. And if anyone, I think has had like, if if I was going to name anyone, like give them the gold star for this week, it might be Diamante because Diamante was so much fun here. And then later on, and as we start talking about like Cork and Diamante is like started to like go like Diamante is good now, y'all. That's basically what I'm trying to say is Diamante is now good. We've talked about, with Ho-Ho Loon in particular, about how the greatest success story of the Drangate system is not turning Ricochet from a dorky kid from Kentucky into a worldwide superstar. It is not convincing Pac to dedicate himself to the gym and then to become 
one of the best professional wrestlers on God's green earth. It is that Ho-Ho Loon went from being pretty bad to not being too terrible. It was kind of a nice change of pace for him. And the same can be said for Diamante, who, Mike, I don't know if you realize this, you know, this show happened on August 8th, 2020. His debut was August 7th, 2019 in Cork and Hall. So we've now had Diamante in the system for an entire year. And he went from someone that was terrifying to watch to, okay, I, I mean, he's not actively bad to now with some of the matches he had during this week a welcome presence on the roster. And that is just something that, I mean, even in December of last year, I just couldn't have pictured myself saying that. And he's someone that quite honestly, as long as Ultimo Dragon is still wrestling, Diamante will have a job. And and once Ultimo hangs up the boots, we might see him ship back to Mexico. But for now he has a job. And if he continues to wrestle like this, I really don't mind. Yeah. And it's something that like seeing this, it's very exciting and he does have the size that makes it really interesting because like he's not a huge guy by lucha standards but he comes in here and i believe he's the tallest man in the roster i think he's the only person who clears six feet at this time and he's become like not just like a solid base he's someone that if i'm a younger flyer and i'm someone that's based on that kind of stuff within within dragon gate I'm going right for, like, I want to have a match with Diamante because I know now that I have the confidence that he's not going to, like, mess it up and I'll take his finisher and it'll look awesome. And that's and that was, like, my big takeaway from this match. Like, it, it, it's, this also was the match that, as we kind of talked at Memorial Gate, how about how there was, like, the moment during Ada and Naruki Doi where, like, you started to hear a crowd call and was immediately, like, stifled. There were crowd calls in this match for Dragon Kid. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So, 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 so that's the world we are. Not as much. Uh, we don't have as many of them either in Osaka or in Corkin, but definitely was noticeable there. Yeah, no, I, the, I mean, the Kyoto shows are always lively. Uh, and I, I think as we go along now, look, you mentioned the attendance earlier and how it was down from their return last month. Cases have gone up, in my understanding is at least, all across Japan in the past month since they reopened. So I, I don't chalk that up to a uh, business failure on the Dragon Gate in as much as I just think there are people less and less willing to leave their house to go see pro wrestling. I think what we're going to see as we go forward in these limited capacity shows, because again, we saw it at Memorial Gate in particular with the muscular bomb where you could hear verbal gasp and cries out for Ata. I think as these companies hit, you know, Kyoto for a fourth or a fifth time, or, you know, Tokyo, I think is a little bit different just because I, I, it just, you know, being in Cork and I think people really don't want to mess up that centralized location, but in Osaka and Kyoto and Kobe Sambo Hall, I think maybe by the end of next month, the month after that, it's not that people are going to be maliciously vocalizing whatever they're feeling about the shows, but I think it's going to become more and more out of sight, out of mind, as obviously when Dragon Gate returned to Kyoto last month on July 4th and July 5th, nobody wanted to be the person to ruin the shows. But now that people have come back to the shows, and um, you know, unless I miss something, the health and safety when it comes to COVID specifically among wrestlers, staff, and fans in those buildings has not entirely been jeopardized. 
I think fans now say, okay, well, they've allowed us back at the shows, and I think it is partially human nature to maybe push those limits a little bit. So I think as we go along, we'll see more and more noise at these shows. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's something that Dragon Gate, like, ran a sold show today on the 13th. So they are still going to be, like, booking things and keep keeping it up, too. So it's going to be real interesting with it going forward. And then should we talk about, like, the stipulations on these matches as it relates to the cage now or when we get to talking about Cork? Let's, let's do it at Cork and let's just okay. let's do it all at once, rip that Band-Aid off them. I'll just say that because R.E.D. won that match, they got to choose the stipula- the risk for Kai at uh, – at, at Dangerous Gate, and then the next match was Torimon versus Dragon Gate, where the winners got aside the stipulation for Ada. It was the Torimon team of Naruki Doi, Susumi Yokosuka, and Kagatora versus Kaisuke Akuda, Kota Minonora, and Jason Lee. Minonora got the pin on on Kagatora in 15 minutes and 42 seconds with the gang. And it's either this or a match on Cork, and that might be my match of the weekend. This match owned. Look, I, I've said my piece on Minora and Jason Lee they can more than deliver in this spot. They can hang. They were great. I need to focus on Kaisuke Akuda, who I just talked about in Diamante debuted a year ago. Well, Akuda came into the company full-time in May of last year, and given the lack of shows in March, April, and May, I think it's fair to say that Akuda's now essentially been with the company for a year and a little bit more. And I liked him from the start. I was really excited at the prospect of this this offshoot, this outcast, this IGF wrestler coming into Drangate, and, you know, obviously they paired him up with Mochizuki, which makes sense from the start. I just couldn't have pictured a world in which Akuda was headlining televised shows like this and where he was the focal point of these big matches. Guys, you know, he's in the ring with the rookie Doi and Yokosuka and Kagatora, and the guy that I'm focused on is Kaisuke Akuda in the main event of a televised show, this goes above and beyond whatever I expected him to do. I I am delighted and also astounded at the way that he has been able to adapt to this company and fit into their mold while not losing any individual charismatic nuances and still working a style that is true to him. And I think we had the perfect blend of that in this match where Akuda was in the ring for a long time, whether it be, you know, against Doya Koska or Kagatora. But what impressed me the most was that finishing stretch right around the 14 minute mark when things go. And there was nothing better in wrestling, quite honestly, when they, than when a Drangate six man just goes and they hit that level. And Akuda was there with the legends every step of the way. And that blew me away because I knew Akuda was good, but you know what has he been doing primarily in this company? He's been wrestling Mochizuki, he's been teaming with Mochizuki, and he's been wrestling Kaito Ishida. It's not exactly uh, pillars of the Dragon Gate house style the way that most people recognize it. Akuda has been off in his own universe to an extent. Not here. He was fully immersed in the Dragon Gate house style and the Dragon Gate six-man, and Akuda rose to the occasion and killed it. And that's not to mention the other five guys that he were in the ring with. Once again, Minora and Jason Lee doing their damn thing, looking good. 
Minora once again gets the pin and a main event on a televised show, which I think is worth noting. And it was also worth noting, I gave this match four and a quarter stars. Yep, same for me. Uh, the, the thing that like gets me is Okuda's the most interesting man in wrestling. You know, he has this style that on the surface does not fit into Dragon Gate, but it fits in very well, as we've now seen, that he's now a year and change within the company. He's someone that was basically, uh, like we talked earlier about Strong Arts, he was really someone without a home for a long time. Ain't no one declaring IGF their home. And then he comes in here, and he has like this awesome like opening sell job. Like He was the person who took the, the, the majority of the heat in the opening goings here against people like Naruki Doi and Kagatora, who Susumu will throw bombs, but that's not the first thing I'm going to think about with Naruki Doi and Kagatora, and it just ended up being really great. Like, the, the thing when, like, we previewed this match is, like, are we going to see a Leon Okuda, a Leon Minora versus Yokosuka Chome title match? And this match made me want to have that, but, you know, definitively, Minora got the pin on the low person in, in Toriumon on the team, and it was a great match. It's one of my two favorite matches from this last week's of shows. Any other big takeaways you wanted to get, you wanted to talk about before we start talking about Osaka? No, Osaka, uh, heed my words carefully here, does not have the best match of these string of shows, but Osaka has my favorite match of these strings of shows, so let's talk about them. Yeah, so Osaka, this was on the 9th, so this show will remain up on the network until the 16th. Attendance was up in Osaka. They went from 285 to 309, and it remains like the hottest building in the company because of how they run it. Opening match was... Boy, this is like a match that when it first happened, I was like, this match is going to be something. Of course, there was something moved around. Uh, Oji Shiba had a knee injury. This was supposed to be a match of his. Don't know if it's the same knee that he blew out, but I was very disappointed to hear. So they did some adjustments, and the big adjustments were in match one, as it was an eight-man tag, Dragon Gate and R.E.D. with heavy hitters on both sides, as the Dragon Gate team was Yamato, Kai, and Keisuke Okuda, along with Problem Dragon, Mondai Ryu, versus... Basically, the R.E.D. top team, I would say, with uh, if you would add in Nishida and says Sakamoto, but it was Ada, Big R, Shimizu, BB Hulk, and Kazuma Sakamoto. Ada won in 13 minutes and 51 seconds with what was called an execution cell Imperial Uno, which absolutely looked the part of just completely just knocking the shit out of Problem Dragon. <laughs> like, I don't like to cuss. You know how I, I, I try to, like, curtail my cussing a lot on air, but he absolutely fucked him up on this finish <laughs> not one but two swear words from iron mike spears this is i between this and the strong hearts talk mike this might be an all-timer this is this is going to the archives this is good stuff as was this opener which again ata held his own as a main eventer looked really strong and i i can't believe i'm saying this given where i felt about these two men in the hobby it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club Slab Pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous 
brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you, you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying oh, hey look at some random cards or whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you get a display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network and at this time last year where one of them was being built up for a Dreamgate match and i remember going that eh, makes sense but i i don't really care about him right now I am on board for a Yamato Eita Dreamgate match whenever they want to give it to me because I think those guys right now are doing really good work. They both look really motivated, and it's Yamato. He could say tomorrow, I want a Dreamgate match, and they're going to give it to him. So I hope it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's good that those two guys are really going after it because Hulk versus Monday Ryu, that was some real shambles stuff in the opening. And then, you know what I mean? This was a, this was the lighter night for a lot of people here. They're like, 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 let's call a spade a spade here. They were in match one because they were going to be all evolved in either the night before or in Cork. And this was the night that they could take it ease a little bit. So I went two and three quarters. It was a fun little opener. Uh, match two was Diamante versus Sora Fujikawa. This was a, another one of those, like, these rookie challenge matches where Diamante put, put away uh, Sora Fujikawa in 7 minutes and 4 seconds with the Vuelta Finale. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things that Diamante, for as much as we improved, and I will talk even more about how he improved in Cork, and not the kind of person I put in a match against Mr. Osaka Edeon 2 to be Sora Fujikawa. No, it, good match, wrong guy to be in the match in Diamante. Uh, this... This should have been someone else. Even just to flip, you know, Diamante and Sakamoto or Shimizu or Hulk and put him in there against Fujikawa and then put Diamante in the opener. I think that would have created a much more interesting dynamic. I mean, this match was interesting in the sense that I was like, I don't know what this match is going to look like. You know, there are guys you get in the ring and you go, well, I know their spot and their spot, so it will look like this. Diamante and Sora Fujikawa together, I did not know what that was going to look like. And it's a nice little three-star match. I mean, I didn't mind it, but 
uh, it wasn't exactly Fujikawa versus Don Fuji, and it was just weird seeing Diamante in this specific role. Well, I mean, it tells you that they trust them at least, you know? That's true. Yeah, that really not much more to say there. Match three was an unaffiliated tag match. We had Susumi Yokosuka and Shuji Kondo versus the cranky old men team of Don Fuji and Gamma. Yokosuka got the pin on Gamma in 14 minutes and 30 seconds with the Jumbo no Kachi Gatame. And this was just like a real big, like, we're just going to start running into each other a lot during this match as it opened up. I was like, okay, this is what we're doing here. And then, then they just like decided to fuck around with Mr. Nakagawa. And it just was like, okay, this is the kind of match we're having here. And, you know, for what it was, it kind of picked up after Susumu took the heat. But it was a fun little match. Uh, Masaki Mochizuki on Twitter put over how much he loved the Shuji Kondo Don Fuji pairing. And those two just doing their damn thing and running into one another as hard as they could. So it's it's back-to-back months where Fuji has a really good showing in Osaka number two. And Don Fuji, I said it last week, but my God, I mean, he continues on the Cork and Hall show. Don Fuji's just trying right now, which is <laughs> a little weird. Like, I'm not used to it because I don't think there's a title matchup coming. I mean, if they do Eita versus Don Fuji, look, I'm going to cross some borders and get over to Japan. I'd like to be in the building for that one, but I, I don't think that's the the direction they're going. So Fuji, uh, maybe it just sat around for four months and then was like, oh, man, my, my knees feel pretty good. I might as well give this another shot. I, I don't know what it is, but I know I want more of him and Shuji Kondo colliding with one another because it is very entertaining to watch. It might be just because of just recording something for AEW earlier tonight, but you saying Don Fuji actually trying to imagine me, had me imagine Don Fuji doing a uh, gimmick for doing the Orange Cassie gimmick, and that is something that will never happen, <laughs> but just the concept of, of Don Fuji coming out and, and the Canadian tuxedo just very very much amuses me. But yeah, was most- that, 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 uh, that, that reminds me, I'm sorry, I got to go off on a quick tangent here, yeah, Mike, yeah, yeah, but I don't know if, if you have seen, well, I guess that's not really the story they tell in the episode. That just made me think of the King of the Hill episode where uh, Hank and his family go to Japan and there's yes. a Japanese Hank Hill there. Yeah, Don Fuji, yeah, yeah. Orange Cassidy and Don Fuji being related would not shock me. And I'll <laughs> leave it at that. If they shared some sort of bloodline, wouldn't surprise me. I would like to see... Uh, that, uh, what is it, Finding Your Roots on PBS? I would like to see the Orange Cassidy and Don Fuji episode of that. Well, what we need to see is what Don Fuji's opinion on the Fast and Furious movies are and how Orange Cassidy <laughs> You know, about. You know he loves them. Don <laughs> Fuji loves a summer blockbuster. I, I mean, I'm imagining right now in the back of the tour bus, he has his glasses on. He uh, He's used up all of his Wi-Fi for the month watching sumo and train videos, and now Don <laughs> Fuji is looking up and they put on Fast and Furious on the tour bus DVD and he's just enthralled. And that's, oh, a, world God, I, yeah. that's a world I want to live in and I'm going to continue thinking that thought. But yeah, th- this was like a fun old man. Was Mochizuki on like a Noah show this today, on this day and that's why he wasn't on this card? Uh, I believe so. That that sounds right. I've got Mochizuki's uh, cage matches only a fingertip away. I spent so much time on the Masaki Mochizuki cage match and... This show was, what, the 9th? Yes, sir. He worked a Noah show on the 10th, so maybe it was travel, because uh, that show was in Yokohama, and I do not know 
uh, where Osaka and Yokohama are on the map in relation to one another. So so perhaps, but yeah, Mochizuki not not on the Kyoto show either, which was very strange to watch two shows without Mochizuki on it. I mean, he had to go team with Yuki Miyamoto the next day. I know the next day DG was in Nagoya, and Nagoya is a distance away from uh, Yokohama, which is near Tokyo. So that makes sense. Uh, yes. Now, now, match four is a match that is a very special match that is for people with very dignified tastes, I would have to say. I'm just going to read the result case, and I'm going to let you take the wheel here. Torimon versus Dragon Gate. Naruki Doi and Masato Yoshino. That's right. Speed Muscle, Doi Yoshi, teaming up against the team of Jason Lee and Punch Tomonaga. Yoshina got the win over Tomonaga with the Soul Naciente in 1440. Case, I'm going to let God take the wheel here. I want you to speak to it. Speak this match into existence. So I compiled a list of matches that will obviously go on a DVD and will be available on the SuckMet website uh, wherever you DVD perverts are still living. Uh, I compiled a list of uh, what I am calling You Cannot Kill What Does Not Die, the Punch Tamanaga story. And these are essentially the essential Punch Tamanaga matches. Uh, these are things that I either had at four stars or higher on a spreadsheet or that I deem historically important. So I've got, I think, 13 matches here, okay. and I'm just going to read them off. And, and Mike, after each match, you can give your brief thoughts on them. But I, I think it is important to chronicle the career of Tamanaga. And that really starts on November 19th, 2011, an open the Triangle Gate match that was set up by a Doi Darts Challenge, where the then Chihiro Tamanaga teamed with Gamma and Sachi Hoko Machine to challenge KZ, Naoki Tanazaki, and Naruki Doi for the, the Triangle Gate belts. This match came about when Doi said Gamma can get a shot at the Triangle Gate titles, but he has to use Doi darts to pick his opponents, and they picked uh, Tamanaga and Sachi Hoko Machine, the two lowest-ranked wrestlers on the roster, and out came this match in this building, Osaka number 2, one of the all-time great Triangle Gate defenses. And probably... Yes, no, no, still, like, the best debut match of someone's career. Like, there was, like, legitimate thing after this match thing that Punch Tomonaga was a god. Like, Yeah, because he, he debuted on a, on a Bayouden show a few months before, but in terms of televised Dragon Gate proper shows, you're right, this was his debut. Yeah, no, no, this show is canon. This, this is any comp set of Punch Tomonaga, unless you have some of his dojo training when he was the most famous dojo student in japan has to start with this tape this match it's iconic it's canon like you cannot talk about just the history of dragon gate without talking about this match and i don't think i'm being too epistolary about that no uh you mentioned punch tamanaga was a or i guess chihiro tamanaga was a thing after this match well keep in mind on the timeline we go from November 2011 to August 2013. So <laughs> whatever that thing was didn't necessarily pan out. But we go to August 1st, 2013 in what I have deemed the hardest match to find because I know a lot of people that have Dragon Gate footage and I know no people that have this match. I saw it once, like five years ago, and have not been able to track it down since. The unit dissolution and loser leaves and loser loses mask or hair five on four handicap two count rules match 
It is Akira Tozawa, BB Hulk, KZ, Mondai Ryu, and Yamato defeating and eliminating the Akatsuki unit of Cyber Kong, Shingo Takagi, Super Shenlong, who would become Yosuke Santa Maria, and Chihiro Tamanaga. Yeah, uh, this is like the hardest unit to span's match to find. I've seen it several times, and it, it's remarkable because this is also peak dickhead to, uh, Tozawa. Like Tozawa would be turned on right after this match, and then you would start seeing the lead, the build up to Monster Express. And yeah, Punch Tomonaga was like a big figure in Akatsuki, which is best described by Jay as you have uh, you have Shingo Takagi as this jock senior in high school, and he drives this two door Trans Am that he always makes sure <laughs> that he gives rides to Yamato or Cyber Kong, but then he shoves the rookies in the backseat and they're cramped. Yeah, this match, when I saw it, I gave it four and three quarters. For reference, I gave the Triangle match. Gate match, I gave it four and a half. So we're, we're the, the Tominaga matches that are good are really good. Yeah, no, like, Tominaga is, the crowd loves Tominaga. I'll put it that way. And especially at this time, the crowd, whenever they give something for Tominaga to get into, this is what we have. After that. We go same month, same year, August 30th, 2013, Kobe Sambo Hall, where T-Hawk, Eita, and UT land in Japan as the Millennials, and they wrestle Masada Yoshino, Ryutsu Shimizu, and Shihiro Tamanaga, and they destroy them. This is not a great match, but a historically important match, not because of Tamanaga, but he does take a lovely beating in this match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something that, I mean, like, the story of the match isn't him, but this kind of shows, like, in these three matches, like your, your leadoff matches, like these are the hits. These are the ones that you get the total essence of him before he becomes Punch Nomonaga here. And and with that, and I have a feeling we're <laughs> gonna ha- you're gonna have that match right there. And boy, am I gonna have a lot to talk about this. And with that, July third, twenty fourteen, I remember watching this live on Nico Nico Punch Perm Katra Punch Perm Dark Match Kotoka versus Chihiro Tabadaga, where the loser, under the guidance of Don Fuji, was forced to get the Punch Perm haircut. So Tamanaga loses. And then after the semi-main event of T-Hawk, Eita, and Flamita versus Tozawa, Shingo, and Uha Nation, Tamanaga comes out to the crowd. He shows off his new hair. Shingo makes fun of him and begins to slap him around. And Punch Tamanaga is born. He snaps. He attacks Shingo. He was tired of the abuse, and he was going to come after him. And he took the name that his hairstyle was named after, and he became Punch Tamanaga. And this is something that kind of begins, like, the storyline that, at least through Shingo's remainder of his time in the company, he kind of, uh, Tomonaga becomes, like, his, like, whipping boy, for lack of a better words. And, yeah, like, this is, like, like, I forgot this was Don Fuji putting it up there, because this is such a, a jerk Shima stipulation to do to pop people. So, yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it, it's something, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, I mean, like, the big joke is that Punch Tomonaga is not blessed by the hair gods, so the fact that he had this happen to him was like, oh my god, Tomonaga. Why? 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 There's a few more that I want to singularly focus on here, and that there's a few tags that we can kind of go through quickly, but a year after... Oh no, I'm sorry, a month after. I was looking at the dates wrong. A month after becoming Punch Tomonaga, we roll into Dangerous Gate 2014. Keep in mind dangerous gate as we go along 
Punch Tabanaga versus Shima in a no DQ match. And I swear to God, if you are a new fan, this happened. I am not kidding you. Punch Tabanaga defeated Shima in a singles match. Yeah, yeah. And this is a pretty, like, I mean, like, as I said, this would be a Shima thing. Like, Shima was not kind to Punch Tabanaga. So <laughs> this is something that <laughs> happened. The the first, I would even say, like, four months of Punch, he was just so weird and different, but so charismatic. I specifically remember he was charming. Kobe, Kobe World uh, 2014, Punch, and he was doing a thing at the time where he was wearing like a like a disheveled dress shirt and tie to the ring. And if yes. you look at Kobe World 2014, the entrance that he makes in like a undercard like six or eight man tag, I don't remember what the match was. I just remember Punch's entrance and the way they shoot it, thinking like, oh my god, this guy is a star. Like this guy <laughs> has figured it out. And it unfortunately didn't really happen. The pinnacle of his career will and will always be him defeating Shima in a singles match because it is just mind-blowing that that happened and it's something that like everyone would bring up for a while that oh you lost a punch Tominaga and Shima being Shima would be like that 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 so <laughs> it, it's something like Tominaga like had like this look that like it wasn't just like this because he quickly turned heel when he got the punch burn because it drove him to madness like that was his gimmick that, that night that night he turned heel he joined Mad Blakey soon after but that night was the heel turn yeah that night was the heel turn and then he had like on like a shirt and tie and then he had like a floral shirt and the thing I remember is that as soon as <laughs> you know where I'm going to with this, as soon as uh, we are team veteran broke up and lost to the millennials, they did an emergency doy darts to find new members of Mad Blinky, and almost all the veterans got picked. It was because they had like huge pieces on the wheel because Nuruki Doi fixed it because Nuruki Doi is a tremendous asshole. And it was Osaka Zenroka, it was Don Fuji and, and Kness joining them. And the great thing was that Don Fuji started wearing the floral shirt too and doing the the eye makeup as well, and he looked like his uncle. <laughs> no, I, I completely forgot about it. you're right. That ruled, but also just the legends being a mad blanket. I think it was a cool angle that I would like to revisit. Uh, yeah, I, this actually this match that I'm about to mention might have been what spawned that. It was the Doidarts Christmas match of 2014 of Shima Kenichiro Rai, Yosuke Santa Maria. Punch Tamanaga and Yuga Hayashi defeating Kanda, Saito, Fuji, Gamma, and Sanchi Hoko Boy in a match that is great. It's four and a quarter stars. Tamanaga exists, but I wanted to mention this match because uh, Yuga Hayashi, who became Al Linden, gets the pen in the main event of a Cork and Hall show. And at the time, oh my God, we had a field day with the possibilities of what this could be. Yeah, and then pretty soon after, he would become El Lindemann, and then he'd school Shima in a mic battle, and that's when Shima noticed that this kid had something. So if you're wondering why yeah. El Lindemann ended up in Stronghearts, this is the start. Great match. <laughs> Tremendous match. Dangerous Gate 2015, so a year after he beats Shima in a singles match, he is in a triple threat open the Brave Gate title match against Akira Tozawa in Super Shisa. Tozawa retained in a match that had it had no right being this good, but it was a really fun match. Yeah, because, like, Tozawa, and y'all know how I feel about Kira Tozawa, he's not a technical wizard. So, like, you go into this match, and you're thinking, okay, Shisa, at this point, you know, I mean, it's Super Shisa. And then he had Punch Tomonaga in on this thing, and just was just completely wild. Like, this match was a match that could have somehow been, like, one and a quarter stars, or it could have ended up as good as this match was. 
we jump all the way to 2017. So the back half of 2015, I think there's a, a punch match that Mike really likes that I've never been a fan of at Final Gate 2015, yes, where he and Gamma owns. challenge for. Yeah, no, that match is not good. It's not on the list. It's not making the DVD cut. Don't worry about it. It's not. It's not consequential to the Punch watch, Tabanaga story. <laughs> watch Final Gate 2015. Up to this point, this was his last good match. <laughs> No, um, it's just that that team of him and Gama was just like, oh my god, guys, what are we doing? You have the best roster in the world, and you put those two on a team. I don't understand that. It was so great. It was it was like a street tough, like never do well kid teaming up with his uncle, who's also a street tough, never do well, and they somehow had a great match at Final Gate. I don't even remember who the tag team champions were. That's the thing. It was was Yama Noi, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about that. One of the great all-time tag teams, and they're in an athletic. They're in an athletic. (laughs) They're in an athletic competition against two unathletic guys. Yeah, that's what that match match was. Tag team ring case. Got to put some respect on Final Gate 2015. March 8th, 2017. Mike, I don't know if you remember this match. I don't, but I had it in my spreadsheet as a four and a half star match. Shima Dragon Kid, Ata Takahiro Yamamura, and Naruki Doi. Versus Shingo, T-Hawk, L. Lindemann, Mondai Ryu, and Punch Tamanaga. This was a head-hunting match. Do you remember yes. this at all? Yeah, because this is when uh, Mondai Ryu turned face and he got a really impassioned promo about now he's wanting to be an uncle. And there was always the jokes about him being like the problem child of the Kamada family. And now he wanted to wrestle. He was coming back from like the injury. He's like, I want to prove myself to my nephew and ended up be a good uncle. I remember that for that promo. And it was really impassioned. I mean, this was when Yamamura had like the eight months where Takahiro Yamamura looked like he was going to be a, a surefire ace. And yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I had to look all of that up last night when I was compiling this, but no, you remembered the angle perfectly and you're right. This is y- Yamamura pins punch in the match. So we clearly see uh long gone of the days of him beating Shima, but this is during the period where Yamamura was just touching gold with, with whatever he did. Now punch also, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, th- if anything that this list has proved, this list has proved like how broken my brain is. I can remember these random Dragon Gate things, and then I lose <laughs> my wallet on a, like a weekly basis. Something in, in uh, global politics happened today, and I just remember reading the headline going, I don't know what the fuck this means. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I, I know that on September 18th, 2017, at Dangerous Gate, once again, the show made for Punch, Berserk versus Jimmy's disbands match. It was Punch, Lindemann, Shingo, T-Hawk, and Yoshida against Genki, Susumu, Saito, Kanda, and Kness. This match is incredible. I remember Punch just being good in this match, which I, I don't necessarily remember all of those occasions, but I remember liking Punch and the effort he gave. Uh, a brilliant end to one of the all-time great units that is the Jimmy's. Yeah, like this was something that was like this match is so controversial and punch like being in this match going like okay yeah punch is in here so like you immediately have your eye on okay punch is gonna be a quick elimination but he turned out to be not not, not the glue of the match we turned out being a, a big asset in a match that was not very popular either on the uh, western shores or in japan itself because of the stipulations and the kind of match it was from there i'll i'll list uh three of these in a cluster because they all happen in 2018, uh, there's a match as now Punch Tabernacle is a member of the Natural Vibes unit where he teams with KZ and Yokosuka against Ryo Saito, Don Fuji, and Kness. I remember loving that match, gave it four stars. 
Casey and Tamanaga would then team up with Genki Horiguchi on August 7th, 2018 against Willie Mack, Don Fuji, and Ryo Saito. I gave that four stars. And then at Dangerous Gate 2018, Casey Horiguchi, Yokosuka, brother Yashi, and Punch, they wrestled Benkei, Big R, Shimizu, Kazuma Sakamoto, Takashi Yoshida, and Yasushi Kanda. And what could honestly be the greatest three-month run of Tamanaga's career in which he had three different four-star matches. And if I'm right, that was the match that Kazuma Sakamoto debuted in Dragon Gate when everyone thought it was going to be passed. <laughs> yes, which I rose above and said, you know what, this sucks, we're all disappointed, but this match is objectively good. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then now we have this match. Doi Yoshi exactly. Lee and Tomonaga. Thank you all for joining on our voyage, of which I... I'm going to one day get case submit the final gate twin gate match between Doyama and uh, uh, Punch and his uncle Gamma was a good match. Thank you all for joining <laughs> us with that. Uh, this is one. This is like a weird match because Tomonaga was just feeling himself and was just being the most Tomonaga thing possible. And you could watch Jason Lee trying not to crack up on the uh, apron all throughout this match. I I unironically loved this match because it is exactly what these smaller televised shows should be where you have speed muscle one of the greatest tag teams of all time and they're in there against jason lee the current twin gate champion and they're in there against punch tamanaga and you know punch is taking the fall that is a given but punch stands up and says you know what on this night I want Naruki Doi, and I want <laughs> Doi to give his fullest effort, and I'm going to try my hardest, and we are going to duke it out like two professional wrestlers. I adored the structure of this match. I think this match was legitimately great, and it's four stars, the first one since 2018 for Punch. God bless. Yeah. It was, uh, there was a moment where, like, they did the, where he was trying to go for the sliding headbutt, and then instead it was like a, yeah, it wasn't like the Bakatari kick, but, like, he did, like, a headbutt into the kick, and it was insane. It just was, like, a very well-worked underdog versus, like, ace match in a lot of ways, and then, you know, Doi Yoshi was just befuddled, saying, like, we thought this was going to be an off night. Like, that definitely was, like, the vibe that they were given. And, and, and like, there was, like, a moment where, like, they, they like, threw Tomonaga into the turnbuckle trying to get trying to get Jason Lee in there so they can kind of simmer down and, and, you know, take it down a couple gears. But then, like, I want to remember, and I don't think this is true, but I want to remember that Tomonaga either, like, tagged out very quickly or he did not tag out, and that was when Jason Lee was starting to crack up. It was, this is a remarkable match, and it's worth going out of your way for it was really nice to watch, and I encourage everyone to watch what I thought was a really great match. I mean, people didn't believe me when I said that I had a, a four-star punch of Monaga match, and it was a four-star punch of Monaga match, guys. And these only happen, as Kay said, about 15 times across nine years. <laughs> so you, you should watch it. You should watch it. All right. The semi-main event was the one of the two uh, risk matches this time. It was Big R Shimizu's uh, risk at play. It was Torimon versus Dragon Gate, six-man tag team match. The uh, Torimon team was Ultimo Dragon, Dragon Kid, Ginky Horiguchi going against the Dragon Gate team of Yosuke Santa Maria, Strong Machine, Strong Machine J, and Dragon Daya. As Case mentioned before, this was kind of the opening match, but as a semi-main event here, and uh, Horiguchi got the pen with the backslide from heaven onto Santa Maria, and a match that was like 
just like a solid main semi main event, but it just was like still had like the uh, the expectations of what we've been seeing over the last few weeks, and that was kind of supplanted into the semi main event. I'll make this quick because I I knew we were going to go long tonight, and then that Tamanaga segment ended up being a lot of time. But I think it was worth it. I, I I will not apologize for listing literally all of the great punch Tamanaga matches in history. It was a worthwhile deep dive from the foremost authorities of Dragon System. I I mean originally like <laughs> to to peel back the curtain, I was like, okay, so what was the last good punch Tamanaga match? And and you were mad at me for bringing it up there and not throwing this off the wheels. This ended up being even better. So I'm okay with with spending twenty minutes on punch Tamanaga. So yeah, this was a Again, a pretty decent semi-main event. There was a lot of Ultimo Dragon and Yosuke Samurai shenanigans. Yeah, yeah. My my one point off of this was, and I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I'll reiterate it here, that for most of the Strong Machines run, when it was Strong Machine F and G, which, by the way, they still have roster profiles on the Dragon Gate Kaiora website, and Masahiro Inoue does not. (laughs) That seems wrong. But we, we wonder just, you know, after this, what does Strong Machine J do? What What is his future? And this match right here, a semi-main event out of Saka number two, where he's good, not great, but good. You know, he doesn't really embarrass himself, and I, I like what he's doing with Ultimo, and then, you know, Dragon Daya outshines him. But, you know, Dragon Daya outshines anybody right now. This is his career, and this is good. He, he will probably become like a five-time Triangle Gate champion throughout his lifespan, and I think that's okay. It was just comforting to know that he can be put in this role and he can not blow the doors down, but he can succeed. Yeah, and on top of that, you had him continuing to be really feisty with Ultimo, which is something that was kind of a nice little thing here. Uh, main event was the uh, Risk match. This time it was for Masato Yoshino. It was Dragon Gate versus R.E.D. Dragon Gate team of KZ, Benkei, and Kota Minora versus Kaido Ishida, Takashi Yoshida, and Hio. And boy, is this a uh, a result that if you just read the result, you'd wonder why did they do this. Hio got the win on Benke after a lot of R.E.D. <laughs> exhibition. And you know, like my thing about this match is this didn't have uh, uh, Yoshida in it. Like if you like plugged everything in there, like we talked earlier about how like most of the heavy hitters were in there. Like like tag out Shimizu, put Yoshida in the opener. This would have been like a, an excellent match if it had five more minutes. And I thought like this had. Way too much Shimizu, and it was a little bit more of a slower match until it built up towards the end, and then it had a very solid finishing stretch. I really liked it. I went three and three quarters with it. Uh, three and a half. The, like I'm not, I'm the, not mad at this. Match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the interference at the end I thought was really well done, and the fact that it actually led to the finish, which was just nice to see, and it's perfect with the opening Ben K. I mean, they surely, I think, have not forgotten about that, and will play off of that at some point, likely for a Triangle Gate match. I mean, they've got a million televised shows coming up within the next month. I would hope at some point those Triangle Gate belts get defended. Okay. And yeah, it's... Yeah, they've got the shows in Fukuoka. Uh, they've got an Osaka doubleheader next month, as well as, obviously, a Corkin on the 9th. So, and then the, you know, uh, Kobe Samba Hall at the end of this month and Dangerous Gate at the end of next month. So there will be plenty of opportunity for them to defend the Triangle Gate belts. I think Yo will be involved in at least one of those challenges if they choose to do more than one. And it's just a, a, a nice main event where you look at it and Yoshida, who is, you know, a new hazard guy, a 2007, 2008 era import. He's the elder statesman in this match where, again, it's just this youth movement that 
I feel like we preached about for a long time, but then it never really came to fruition. Well, now it's happening and these guys are holding their own in main events. And it's just, it's nice to see. So Osaka number two as a whole, not a great show, but an efficient show. I'm someone that obviously watches every show and I could sit back and watch this and go, yes, I like the direction things are headed coming out of this show. Yeah. And talk about an efficient show. The next show, Cork and Hall on August 12th, attendance 578, which was a jump up from last month. Uh, this was a show that was incredibly efficient, especially if you're someone that watched the Japanese one and, and there's a lot of mic talking. You're like, okay. Uh, I don't know if the English commentary version is up yet. I know it's coming soon. So like, keep an eye out for that as well. Yes, as of right now, and again, we're recording this, it's currently 11.18, 11.19 as the clock just turned p.m. Eastern time on August 13th. A late night opened the voice gate for us, and as my Gate network continues to sputter, I believe uh, that the English version is not up. As of right now, it is not up, but when it is released, it will have commentary from Gate J, as well as at least for a few matches, Ho-Ho Loon. Uh, does color commentary. So that was an experiment. They tried to get somebody with Jay uh, in the booth, in the booth with Jay, rather. I have not heard, so I don't know how it goes. Yeah, and it seems like that if you're going to watch the Japanese version, it'll come down the 19th. They aren't taking the English versions off. Like, everything they've done English commentary on has stayed on the network, so it'll be up for them forever. But, like, it's a... It was a match that I mean, like, they keep these shows tight. This one had the most mic work, but if you cut out all the mic work, this was an hour and a half ring time show, which is kind of wild to think about. The opener was Toriumon versus Dragon Gate, six-man tag team match. Don Fuji, Susumi Yokosuka, and Yusuke Kanda versus Keisuke Akuda, Problem Dragon, Monday Ryu, and Ho-Ho Loon. And this was a pretty lively opener, especially considering he's usually around in openers. Like, this was Don Fuji again in a mood. Yeah, look, I hope, and I, I now that I look at the calendar, I have that August 30th date August 30th date penciled in as a possible Don Fuji versus Kaisuke Akuda singles match, because I think that should happen, and I think that would be a delight. And everyone else, fine, did their job, but I was once again drawn to Don Fuji unleashing hell, and this time it was against the trained combatant in Kaisuke Akuda. It was a very fun dynamic to watch. Yeah, and like one of the big things in this match was that they were all doing the Ultimo style neck cranks and Don Fuji labored and finally did it. And then post-match Keisuke Akuda was just pissed off and frustrated. He stormed out, did not help out, uh, did not help out a problem Dragon Monday Ryu to the back. And then because he didn't help out, then Don Fuji tried to give him a choke slam from the top rope. P- pretty standard and, stuff. Yeah. N- narrowly escaped, but a very, very interesting angle given what came later on the show. Absolutely. And then that, Leads us into match two, where we, if you thought that Don Fuji acting wild with some shenanigans, we had a Ryo Saito versus Ichikawa match. It was eight minutes and 48 seconds. Saito got the submission on a Konamawa Ichikawa with the reverse figure four leg lock. And hey, I'm glad they came out here and decided to have a comedy match in the middle of a socially distanced and encouraged not to laugh crowd. Like, come on, guys. Like, that is on your bullshit, and I appreciate that. This match existed, and we are better off for it. I enjoyed this, but I I just can't come up with the words to describe it other than that. Yeah, it, it, if you are a new person to Dragon Gate, these matches, ha- like, like whenever Ichikawa is on a show, which is not as much anymore, usually they like having him against Ryo Saito because then they'll just go in out there and just have an outright Kame match. Ichikawa, I know how we like saying that Masaki Mochizuki is one of the top 10 wrestlers of all time. 
Ichikawa might be the best comedy wrestler of all time. And you get to see the master at work here. And it's just, well, it's just like, it was really normal. Then it got super weird, like, as these matches are one to do. I don't think there's much more we could really add to it other than Sairio was in a mood after this. A lot of the old guys were cranky on the show. Like, was that just me noticing that? Or, like, people were just, like, wanting to choke slam people. Rio Saito was, like, pissed. It was just like, okay, <laughs> everyone's in a mood today. It's, uh, you know, it's it's tough for everybody. And these old guys only have so much patience. And now there's so much youth going out, going on. I can only imagine the locker room is now just full of TikToks and apps and smartphones, all these things that I'm sure Don Fuji just loathes. And Rio Saito doesn't exactly seem like the technologically advanced type. He's so they're probably a little annoyed. Yeah, no, that. He told he told Uha Nation to uh, make sure to uh, text him versus like he because he has only has a flip phone. So use the phone. Don't like send him emails. <laughs> that that makes sense. He has an actual smartphone now, but that was the case of him in 2013. Match three was an unaffiliated tag match as we had more of the cranky men, as was Misaki Mochizuki and Gamma versus Takashi Yoshida and Kazuma Sakamoto, where we had like a, a Masaki Mochizuki House of Fire spot and winning it with a uh, with a uh, Hurricane Rana converted from a Cyberbomb in eight minutes. And a, like a fun match in this, like this, this Corkin was a breeze to watch through. And this was like another breezy match. Yeah, the opening three matches flew by here, and as you mentioned, the the thing of note is just the Mochizuki, uh, just almost a, an old school style of way uh, of the way he worked this match. I mean, he really bounces off of the two guys because there's not many guys on the roster bigger, let alone f- more physically imposing than Mochizuki. But Sakamoto and Yoshida are probably the only two guys on the roster that are taller and can work a larger style than Mochizuki can and they played it they played that right into the match and Mochizuki you know is him and he came away looking great mm-hmm. and then we had what was my other favorite match of this weekend and I of this week and I feel like it's the same for you as well Toriumon versus Dragon Gate Ultimo Dragon Naruki Doi Dragon Kid and Shuchi Kondo versus KZ Ben K Strong Machine J and the returning champion, the absolute boy, UT. And Shuji Kondo got the pen on UT in 17 minutes and 8 seconds with the King Kong Lariat and Case take the wheel here. Well, it's nice to see UT back. Again, he he missed a year. The, the best stretch of his career was upended by a broken collarbone. He missed 12 months and then came back in May at one of the empty arena shows and wrestled Ultimo Dragon and then was going to wrestle in Nagoya in July, his hometown, and injured himself in practice and had to pull out of that show. So we see him here, and I am really, really hoping that UT is able to stay healthy for the remainder of this generation of warfare, because I I don't know if I'm playing into it too much. Maybe it accidentally uh, divulges into fan fiction here, but UT has been marketed as a guy that grew up a Drangate fan to where he is young enough to remember watching this stuff on TV and not as a, a teen in the way that an Akira Tozawa or a Shingo Takagi would. He is of a different generation where he grew up a fan of this promotion. And I think his interactions with these Torimon guys, that he is his characters on record as stating that he is such a fan of them and respects them so much, his interactions are going to be incredibly interesting, assuming he stays healthy. 
And obviously, it is a gamble to stay healthy when you're in the ring with the King Kong Lariat man himself, Shushi Kondo, who continues. It is not just a phase or a gimmick. Kondo, since returning to the company, has been dynamite when they have needed him to be. In all of his big matches, Kondo has delivered to the fullest extent, and this match was no different. And importantly, the finishing stretch was Kondo and UT, and they showed that they have excellent chemistry with one another so this match is a win for everyone involved it's a it's a winner of a match and it's four stars best match on the show thoroughly enjoyed it i'm surprised i went higher than you this i was four and a quarter i absolutely adored this match this was a match where it had a really interesting opening at ut i mean we saw he had chemistry with ultimo being that he's willing to grapple and do yave with him and then he has, like, this exchange of Naruki Doi where, like, Naruki Doi is trying to, like, do, like, his hot stretch. And then he, like, turns it one of the things into an arm bar all of a sudden. And you're like, okay, UT. Like, you're not taking it easy. And then Sushi Kondo talking about not taking it easy does, like, one of the more mean stomps I've ever seen onto him and just, like, brutalizes him with it. And also this this Dragon Gate generation team is a whole lot of fun because you have KZ in there, you have Benkei, you have Strong Machine J along with UT, and he just meshes so well with this, and that's something that, like, I'm gonna be really excited that as much as I think that, like, him and Ishida could be a match going forward, especially given the semi-main event, I really, really enjoy seeing him face off against the Torimon guys, because of the history you say, and he has this innate chemistry that, I mean, two years ago we wouldn't know if UT could wrestle with Ultimo Dragon. We couldn't know if he was going to be able to ever have chemistry with Shuji Kondo. And now we see it, and it's exceptional. And it's something that I really want to see a whole lot more of. And it's just something that, like, UT is someone that, like, he sadly lost a year due to just a freak injury. And the fact that he's able to go and go at this rate since his return is just, it's heartwarming to see. And it's just, this is a match that, out of, like, the two other two matches i think i like this match maybe a touch more than the main event in kyoto just because of the possibilities and like you came out of this match even though like of course ut was gonna lose this match but you came out of this match going like all right like everything feels right with this match and i'm excited to see where things go to with from here i should also note that i love that 20 years into his career naruki doi is still innovating in these multi-man matches where here he did a spot that i've never seen before where kz was laying on the mat and he picked ut up and he gave UT the Doi 5 onto the chest of KZ and then ran off the ropes and hit the Bakatari sliding kick onto I uh onto UT right. and then at the same time back sentoned onto KZ. It was just a, a marvelous, marvelous way of going about that. It was a, a very cool spot that I've never seen Doi do before. Yeah, it just was like a smart like thing. I mean, Naruki Doi is someone that is one of the best tag team workers in history. And he thrives in context where it's like, okay, I have more people to play around with. What can I do here that's interesting? And I never thought about doing taking his finish and then making it into a finish and then hitting someone else in the process of and it owned doing that. Like it was just a great time. Uh semi-main event was Dragon Gate versus R.E.D. six-man tag. Kota Minor, Jason Lee, and Dragon Daya on the Dragon Gate side. Uh, Kai- Kaito Ishida, Diamante, and Hio on the R.E.D. side. This is what I think is Diamante's best match in Dragon Gate so far. I went three and three quarters on it. But that's not the story about this match case. The story about this match is that Ishida came out with a friend. The green demon is back. Mike, who was under this mask? I mean, the natural reaction is to say, oh, it's it's Okuda. 
Like that's obviously how they're they're having us read into it. So it can be fifty fifty being someone else. So it's a very intentionally bulked up looking suit this time. Like more so than it was. <laughs> it, it literally looked like he had pillows under his suit. Right. Yeah. So I mean, under the mat under the mask of this time could be anyone. Who's it gonna be when it's revealed? Okuda is someone that I think they've been trying to lead this towards this and this the most interesting storyline in wrestling this year. So who knows? Who do you think? My under my, my understanding is that the the native crowds are at least playing along with the idea that it is Akuda. I think that is the goal of this is to get people to think it's Akuda. I ultimately do not think it will be him. I know the Western narrative that I have seen thrown out there a lot is that Casey is the one under the mask. Now that is something that I don't see happening, especially, especially given that Ata has the dream gate and Ishida has the brave gate. So it's not like they are lacking star power and they, they need one last run before this angle ends uh, for a guy with a, with a major singles title. I, I don't see that happening, but it, it should be noted that Casey has been the front runner for these things. You know, it makes sense that we are now at the point of the storyline where somebody is going to switch sides or to swap or maybe even debut. We've both been told, at least in the case of Shun Skywalker, not to expect him back for this calendar year, that he'll be in Mexico until at least early 2021. Obviously, things could have changed. Yuki Yoshioka, no clue. Just who knows? So it leaves us in an interesting situation. And... Yeah, I'm a little puzzled on this one because I just don't know who it could be. I, I, I'm intrigued by the idea of it being a Cuda. Again, I, I don't I something says that's not likely, but I also don't know who else it would be. So I think I just talked myself into saying it's Kaiski Akuda under there. KZ. I just you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna turn KZ like that, you have to at least have him challenge for the Dream Gate, and that's not gonna happen because Ata has the Dream Gate. Right? Yeah. I mean, he's too big of a player at this point, which is wild now to say, and a happy thing to say that Kisuke to say that KZ is too big of a player for that. But this match was just like a really good time. Diamante, I think this was his best match in the promotion. Kota Minador does like this insane water wheel suplex on it that the crowd is freaking out for. And then when this match really got going, like they did the RED sleeves to begin with, and then they serious up and then had like a salt thing. Like I've noticed that whenever he owes with Ishida, he is like, he is in like a level of a comfort zone where he's not necessarily when he's teaming with other people. Maybe it's that having the generational peer there lets him kind of step up here. And I mean, this is a match with, I think Diamante's early thirties, but I mean, the semi main was six would have been like five people under the age of 30. So insane. That, that's exactly what I wanted to mention because I think you nailed the end ring perspective of it. But e- even I know with the limited capacity show, it's whatever. All of the star power was loaded into the main event or in the you know yeah I guess in the main event yeah because I was thinking H was in the opener but that was the prior show. So all of the star power was loaded into the main event. I get that, but you were looking at a semi main event in Cork and Hall where the elder statesman of the match, at least in terms of their Dragon Gate career, is Kaito Ishida who debuted in 2015. Jason Lee and Diamante were wrestling at that time, but not in the company. And they were, you know, essentially given the restart button when they joined up with Dragon Gate. That is an insane thing. I don't know of any company in Japan that could have a credible and natural feeling semi-main event 
with guys that for all intents and purposes are less than five years into their career. I just, I, you know, maybe a Joshi promotion, yeah. but I don't know if a, a men's promotion that could do that right now. I mean, like the only other one would be 2AW, but that's 2AW. So. Well, that's not a, that's a fake promotion, my friend. You, of all people, the master of, of oh, oh, gatekeeping no. promotions. Oh, no, 2AW was fake. Oh, it's fake as hell. I mean, I don't believe a single person uh, that 230 people were in Corkin for the Strong Hearts appearance. I don't believe it at all. Uh, so the main event, uh, the Road to Dangerous Gate special six-way match. This was to decide the order to the cage match, as we've like talked about before. The order is they're doing staggered entry this year, and the rule is is that there will only be they'll be putting cage, they'll be putting uh, flags out as people enter. So the first two people will have one flag, and then when another person comes in, there'll be two flags, and you can pull a flag any time. So the idea is if you come in last, you will have the opportunity to have less flags. I'm just going to run through the full order here, case up. Uh, the first fall, and the way this match worked is you get out of the match by winning a fall. So it wasn't elimination rules. It was you you get a fall, you pull your 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 number, and you're out of the match. So the first fall was BB Hulk throwing Kai over the top rope. This is a survival rules match, so it was over the top rope eliminations. And then he drew the number four. Kai then did a schoolboy on Yamato, and he drew the number two. Yoshino did a Torbellino crucifix on Shimizu. Shimizu took the last three falls in this match, by the way, and he drew the number he drew the number six and was apoplectic. Ada threw Shimizu over the top rope and then drew number three. So the last two people in the match were Yamato and Shimizu. The only two numbers left were either one or five. Yamato choked out Shimizu with the with the Dojima sleeper, something you don't see a lot. He does not choke out people as much as he used to. So he had a choice between drawing number one and number five. He drew number five, so Shimizu lost the last three falls of this match, is entering the cage at first, and he will have the opportunity, along with Kai, to have the most chances of escape. It is a weird match, and I said this in my written review over at VoicesOfWrestling.com, where the most dramatic parts of this match, where the real action was, was in between the falls when the wrestlers were opening up their envelopes. It just, it was a very strange match. One that, you know, if you do it once a year, once every few years, I really don't mind it. I, I had a lot of fun watching this match, but it was really tough to break down from any sort of uh, analytical or in-ring perspective because it was essentially a prolonged angle. Right. I didn't write this match for the record. I, 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 I gave it, I gave it three and a half. I gave it three and a half because I felt like I had to give it something. Right. It's it's more entertaining than a three and a half star match, and I am pro star rating. I don't think they're dumb, and I think they're a useful guide. But this was one of the rare instances where I was like, "Wow, this is an inconvenient system for what this match was." Yeah, no, this is a match where this happens. You're like, "Oh, I have to rate this. Why do I have to rate this?" <laughs> and, and for me, I'm just like, "Okay, I could recommend this match and just move along my day." But yeah, this was a prolonged angle. This actually is something if you're a new fan, I would actively encourage you. If you've not watched this already, or if you watch it really confused, watch the cut that's going to come up on English. Jay will break this down better than anyone else about this while calling this match. Like, he is the person that I would say can walk you through this match, and it will help you out immensely, in my opinion. So, we held off to talk about this here. The three shows over the weekend, Kyoto, Osaka, and Nagoya, the final two matches of each show— the winning side got to choose the stipulations. And we'll break down this a lot more further, but 
Kai's stipulation was chosen by R.E.D. If he loses the cage match, he's kicked out of Dragon Gate forever. If he wins the cage, if he's the first person to escape, however, he must join R.E.D. Ada was decided by Dragon Gate on Kyoto as well. This time, if he loses the cage match, he must join the Dragon Gate generation. If he does not escape first, so if he draws the second to the last flag, he must defend the Dragon Gate, the Dream Gate against a member of the Dragon Gate generation. And if he's first to escape the pay, the cage, he he's fine. Uh, then we have like the ones that are a lot more easier to explain, at least on stipulations. These are all lose. If you are losing, then you have something happen to you. First one is Big R Shimizu is decided by Toriman and Osaka. If he loses the cage match, he must leave R.E.D. He must change his hairstyle to a crew cut. He must return to his rookie gimmick of Ryotsu Shimizu. BB Hulk, this one was, start, was decided in Nagoya. And if he loses the cage match, he must revert to his real name, which he's never, ever gone by in Dragon Gate, of Terumasa Ishihara, and start over from zero and join Mochizuki Dojo as a trainee. And then Yamato has like the most, you're getting, just getting messed with person. He His stipulation was decided by the Torimon generation. If he loses the cage match, for the rest of the year, he must do the opening talk segment, which is the thing that happens each show where where uh, GM Yagi and Mr. Kikuchi run down the card and say, hey, thank you all for coming here. Here's match one. This is an interesting match. Yay. He has to do that because I think he does not know how to talk on the microphone. He must change his ring gear to designless white briefs with white shoes and socks. And he must change his entrance gown for a bathrobe and he must straighten his hair is this one like a joke on hiroshi yamato because that's what i thought this one was right here i had not thought of that but now that you say it you might be on to something yeah, that, that, that might be a bit about the former freelancer hiroshi yamato who i don't even know where he works now but he's no longer doing stuff in dragon gate and i say this one for last this is the one that ultimately has the most stakes as decided by red after they won in osaka by cheating if masato yoshino loses the cage match he must retire immediately, have his head shaved, and then directly after, as he has like his head shaved and is like combing off hair off his body, he will have a retirement match of Naruki Doi. This is after they originally said his retirement match would be a seven-man gauntlet of R.E.D. So, Case, those are the risks as of today. I think that we'll break this down further, but what is your initial uh, response to these? I have a real hard time even beginning to break it down, given the uncertainty that follows at next month's Cork and Hall, if you'd like to break that yeah. down as well. So next month's Cork and Hall show, because of how much Miyamoto and Yoshino were begging GM Yagi, he said, hey, I'll give you all one last opportunity. It's a number change six-man tag match where Big Shimizu, the first entrant, Yamato, the third entrant, and Ada, the fifth entrant. Sorry, it's Ada, the third entrant, Yamato, the fifth entrant. The odds are going up against the evens of Kai, the second entrant, BB Hulk, the fourth entrant, and Masato Yoshino, the sixth entrant. And the winner gets the choice to either change their number or they could change someone else's number in the upcoming match. So they they really booked this that, and as soon as they announced the stipulation, I knew that Masato Yoshino was going to draw six. And I don't think that changes. Yeah, I'm bummed out by the September match just because I really liked the way things played out here. Right. Like, I really enjoyed the stipulations that were set. And now, I mean, look, if, you know, Kai and Ata switch spots, who cares? But it's just, I, I wish we would have gotten, you know, a Brave Gate or a Triangle Gate or a Twin Gate match in this main event of, of the September Corican show, but instead we've got this, which I'm sure it'll be a good match. I'm just not into altering the stipulations as they are. So because of that, 
I will hold off on talking about my thoughts on the cage match until we talk about that Cork and Hall show because things could change. Yeah, things could change. It does feel like to me, I thought that Danger Skate was a lot sooner than it is, apparently. It is not. But Case, that is a September problem. What we have out in front of us is an August 15th problem as Dragon Gate goes back to their home base for their first match, their first show there in August. They'll have two shows there this month. And I'm going to run down the card, and you can already guess what my favorite match is, but Toriumon versus Ari, uh, Dragon Gate six-man tag opening the show. Yoshino, Kid, and Saito versus Strong Machine J, Lee, and Okuda. Tag match, KZ and Gamma. That's an odd pairing. Versus Kazuma Sakamoto and Diamante. The singles match, Misaki Mochizuki versus UT. The Dragon Gate versus R.E.D. tag team match, Yamato and Kai versus B.B. Hulk and Takashi Yoshida. Challenge eight-man tag team match. Naruki Doi, Don Fuji, Shuji Kondo, and Sumiya Koska versus the Outdoor Kids, as I've called this class, because they do not use indoor voices, of Kento Kabune, Takedo Kamai, Sora Fujikawa, and Madoka Kakuta. The main event is Dragon Gate versus R.E.D., Ben K, Kota Minonora, and Dragon Daya versus Ada, Big R, Shimizu, and Kaito Ishida. So, int- this is like the most, like deep Kobe Sambo Hall show they've had a long time. There's only one Kobe Sambo Hall show that comes to mind, and look, I'm sure I'm missing one, but sure. the, the fact is when I think about like the good Sambo Hall shows of recent vintage, the one that comes to mind is the May 22nd, 2016 uh, Sambo Hall show, which was a King of Gate show that was loaded. I mean, it, it could have headline, you know, could have been in Cork and Hall where you had Tozawa versus Susumu and Dragon Kid versus Mochizuki and Don Fuji versus Shingo, Shimizu versus Doi. Those were all on one Sambo Hall show. I don't remember a time since where I've looked at a card like this where I like the, uh, you know, the, the opener again. It's weird. I don't know what to do with these matches, but on paper, it looks good. You have Mochizuki versus UT, which when that match was announced, our open the voice gate mentions were literally people concerned for the health and safety of UT and rightfully so mind you, I think that match is going to end very poorly for him. A main event that is this generation. I mean, this is like the big six essentially of this new generation where it's Ata who's the elder statesman. And then, you know, Shimizu, Ishida, Ben K, Minora and Daya in that order. And they're headlining in, Kobe, which is a big deal. Even on a small show, that seems like a really big deal that it's those six in the main event. That should be a fresh pairing. And then you've got that challenge eight man, which my theory <laughs> is my my and look, I didn't even realize Shuji Kondo was in that match until just now. Oh my god. Um my 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 theory is that the rookies are going to get absolutely destroyed in this match. They're gonna get the shit kicked out of them, and it's gonna be lovely. I think at one of the upcoming televised shows, and and there is a lot to choose from because after this, uh, there will be the Fukuoka double shot on August 23rd, another Sambo Hall show on August 30th, and then uh, the Corkin Hall show on September 9th, a Osaka number two double shot on September 12th and 13th, and then the Dangerous Gate show on the 21st. I think on one of those shows, we will get an eight-man with the rookies against the Drangate generation. And I could very easily see the Drangate generation trying to poach 
a Kabune or a Kakuta or a Kamai or a Fujikawa for their fight in the generational army. So we will see. I think that's the direction things will go. I hope that's the direction things will go. All I know for sure is that we get this Toriumon versus Rookies tag that should be insane. I mean, how many times have I talked about December 1st, 2016? Like, it, it's, I mean, it's it's one of those matches we're just off of Ben K's success alone, and this is, uh, it was what, Shima, Fuji, Mochizuki, Gamma, and Dragon DK. Kid, maybe? Yeah, DK, DK against uh, Ben K, Shun Skywalker, Yo, uh, Katsu, uh, Katsumi Takashima, who ended up retiring because of an eye injury, and Mike, who was the fifth guy in that match? It was Yuki Oshioka. It was Yuki Yoshioka. I, for, I forgot he had debuted at that point, which that's right. I mean, Yoshioka being at it actually completely changes my perspective on the match. It makes it even more important. But it was December 1st, 2016, Cork and Hall, and it was this structure of match. It was five rookies against five legends, and it goes down as one of not only one of the great, just from a storytelling perspective, one of the great matches in Trangit history, quite honestly, but one of the most important matches. And they're attempting to capture a similar magic with this bout. And I think they will given the names involved. I am chomping at the bit to see this. I don't remember the last time I was this excited for a specific match. It's just exactly what Mike and I like in Dragon Gate. And I am so excited to give it a watch. I mean, Takeda Kamai learned that if you chop, you're going to get punched in the face. Imagine trying to chop either Shuji Kondo or Don Fuji. How much of a bad idea this is. Like, this is going to be, if you're someone that, like, th- th- this is not going to, like, this is going to be a stiff match. And you, if you're someone that likes that kind of stuff, this is, like, a whole meal you could eat your way up. But if you're someone that's, like, this is going to be a rough, these kids are probably in for the hardest night of their career on the fifth, on the 15th. And I don't think that's me exaggerating. Because this is going to and, be... And, and if they get through it, they will be rewarded. Yeah. I mean, you look at how that match happened, I mean... Benke, you could start his rise from that match immediately. Shun Skywalker, you know, he's on excursion like this. Yuki Oshioka, that was like his first big match, and that was Takashima's first match ever. And then Hio kind of was like, showed flashes of what Hio could be. And then we'll get a, we'll get a good idea of who these these kids are. Like, we, we've been forecasting, we've been projecting from like the first few months of their career. This is going to be like the real gut check here. And then Mochizuki and UT, this could actually like... Mochizuki is a great grappler. Like, this could be a really kind of interesting and fun match. And then even, like, going further down the card, the opener, I mean, you know, it's going to be the opener. I mean, it's been a lot of fun seeing Strong Machine J get really mad at the veterans, so I'm looking forward to that. And then the the tag match, I mean, KZ and Gamma, that's a wild tag team. And then, you know, KZ is going to go against a heavy hitter in Kazma, and then he's going to be against the the rapidly improving Diamante, who actually might be my most approved wrestler of the year now that, like, I can't really give it... Like, Shuji Kondo improving by just taking three months and caring, I feel like is kind of against it. And then, as you said, like, the new big six, you have the older members of the, of this generation on one side, and then you have the younger guys on the other. It's going... It, it's easily the most excited I've been for a Kobe Sembo Hall show. It will be on at 6 p.m. Japanese Standard Time. That's 5 a.m. if you're on the East Coast of the United States. 10 a.m. if you are in Greenwich Mean Time. And then that means uh, 2 a.m. on the West Coast. can't believe I pulled this out of my head at almost midnight, Case. And then there's another show this weekend. It's not tape. It's, it's in Hyogo as well. So it's, they're staying in Kansai this weekend. 
there's a we'll see how Sorfu Chikawa is feeling after that because he has Masaki Mochizuki the next day. That sucks. That oh sucks. man, that is a that is a tough schedule for the youngster. Yeah, I mean, so th- that's that's how things are looking into next next week, and that's the only taped show we have until the twenty third. So I mean, we went deep this time because they loaded it. Next week's show, I mean, we'll talk about. Hopefully, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll still have four rookies after this the show, and we'll talk about that <laughs> afterwards. But case we've gone long, but we've had a lot of journeys to go on. This was a this was a week that we knew that was gonna we were gonna go a little bit long here. So I'm totally fine with that. So anything you want to hit on before we get out of here? No, this was this was a fun one. Uh, recapped strong hearts, went over literally all of the great matches in Punch Tamanaga's career, and ended previewing what could end up being uh, some civilian casualties this weekend in the Legends versus Rookies match. So it was a fun time uh, by all on this episode of Open the Voice Gate. Yeah, this was an absolute blast. Uh, you could follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. That's both Case and I. We basically tweet out, tweet out all the news. Case, when, as Case is a young man and is able to wake up early to watch wrestling, he does that and will live tweet when possible. I will usually I usually keep pretty far abreast on what's going on with uh, Shun and Yuki Yoshioka in Mexico. I make sure I tweet there as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Fujiheya. That's Fuji with two eyes, like Don Fuji. You can follow Case on Twitter at underscore in your case. But that's going to do it. This has been a long one. This has been a really fun episode of Open the Voice Gate. We hope you all enjoyed it. And we'll be back with you next week with the weekly update. Take care, everyone. <laughs>